All right, get out your Bibles and just, no need to open them anywhere just quite yet. We'll see. We'll be all over this morning. Uh, The sermon this morning is called Leviticus and Jesus, the tale of two covenants. We will be all over the scriptures, so have it out. Um, But let me set this up for a minute on what we're going to do this morning. In our approach to Leviticus, uh, we've begun by introducing the book as a whole, getting the big picture in our minds before we take a deep dive into uh, the wonderful details of Leviticus. So we considered the overall themes of the book, the major point of the book, the dominant theme being how a sinful people can be near to a holy God. We saw that this theme is developed through lots of smaller themes, themes of sacrifice, priests, clean and unclean, holy and profane. Uh, We saw the author of Leviticus being Moses and, of course, the Holy Spirit, um, that he was speaking to Israel in the context of Mount Sinai, communicating God's law to his people and the Old Covenant. Um, Because in order to understand Scripture, we need to understand it in its context. This is the way that we need to approach Scripture. We always want to ask Scripture, what does the author say? And why does he say it here? How does it fit into the larger point of what is being said? Because the Bible is not just like a fortune cookie where you can just pull out one specific line and then apply it to whatever pops into your head. It reminds me of a book somebody once gave me called Devil, Give Me Back My Money. And the, <laughs> it's okay to laugh. Uh, the premise of the book was based on Ephesians 1.3, which says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the book reasoned like this. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we know, of course, that the spiritual blessings are money. And so, but they're, but they're up there in the heavenly places, and that's the problem. So why aren't they down with you? Well, it's because Satan has built like a layer. Satan's the prince of the power of the Air, so he's built a layer between you and that sweet, sweet money. And so you just have to pray really hard. And if you pray long enough and hard enough, then a hole will open up in the, the air, and then all that money will just come dumping down into your life. That was, the, that was how the book went. Devil, give me back my money. Uh, is that what Ephesians 1.3 is talking about? Absolutely not. The context, all we have to do is just read the rest of Ephesians, the chapter of Ephesians chapter 1, and see it's about election, adoption, holiness, predestination, redemption, forgiveness, revelation, reconciliation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and inheritance in the age to come. We have to read in context. Okay? We have to ask, what does the Bible mean when it says what it says? So this guy, this Bible scholar, Edmund Clowney, Uh, talks about three horizons of context that we should keep in mind when we approach Scripture. And this is very helpful as we seek to read Scripture um, for what it's saying to us and not what we want to read into it. Uh, So Clowney talks about three horizons of context. And the three horizons are the textual horizon, the epochal horizon, like related to an epoch of time, and the canonical horizon. 
So the textual context refers to the verses around the passage you're reading. So in the one, Ephesians 1, 3, the textual context was just Ephesians 1, 1 through 15 or whatever. So that chunk right around it. Read the verses before, read the verses after, ask yourself what's the main point and what's been going on. So as we looked at Leviticus, we saw last week, this is what we looked at when we saw the conclusion of Exodus, the last verses of the book of Exodus. We're talking about finally the tabernacle was built and they could meet with God but, and then the glory of God filled, and then they couldn't go in. And you think, oh, that's a surprise. And so then Leviticus begins. We're looking at Le- the Leviticus 1-2 about how they were then getting instruction how they could draw near. So there was a problem about drawing near because of the holy presence of God. They couldn't draw near, so then he's laying out, here's how you can draw near. And so that shows us the context of the verses in the textual context, the verses right around it. Now, the next horizon, so that's always the first one we look at. The next horizon, we zoom back to the apocal context. That refers to the epic that the text is in, okay? The large era of time in redemptive history that we find our passage in. And that is important, and that informs the text. Because the Bible's not a timeless encyclopedia of abstract truths, it's a recounting and proclaiming of God's redemptive plan across history, right? It's unfolding across history, and it's developing, and it's, changing as his plan is enacted and, and uh, further revealed. And since the Bible is a narrative, it's a history, a true history of real events, we need to understand where we are in the story in order to understand what's happening. So that's why we need the apocal context, horizon of context, right? This is what Tommy gave you when he outlined the whole narrative of the Old Testament across so that we could remember where we're at and where we're situated in the story. We tried to look at that a little bit really briefly last week and the theme of God dwelling with his people where we started in Eden and God's dwelling with his people in the fall and how that affected it, how God's dwelling with his people developed across Exodus and then into the beginning of Leviticus. That was the apocal horizon that we looked at, right? Where does this fit into the context a little bit bigger? So imagine I started telling you a story from my life and in this story, I'm, there I am lying in a puddle of my own vomit writhing around and yelling at my mom. It's important that you know that I was six months old in that story. You need the apocal context to know why I was laying in a pile of my own vomit yelling at my mom. Because I was six months old, and that's what six months old do, right? If I was 30 years old in that story, it would be very different, okay? And some of your concerned looks would be a little bit more worthy. So we need to know where we are in a story in order to understand the story well. And that's what we get from the apocal context. So we've seen that Leviticus is God's instruction to the nation of Israel at the founding of their nation in the giving of what we call the Old Covenant. Leviticus is the content of the Old Covenant, the covenant that God entered into specifically with the nation of Israel through the leadership of Moses. And it's beginning to address the problems of Genesis 3, which were promised to Abraham, would be resolved in his offspring to restore the world to something like the original glorious state in Eden. That's the apocal context of Leviticus. And that brings us to the third horizon of context, which is called the canonical context. This refers to where the passage fits in the story as a whole, where it fits in the entire canon of Scripture. And because the central point of the entire biblical narrative is the person and work of Christ— the coming of Christ to establish the new covenant, this means we need to understand how the story relates to Jesus, 
how the story relates to the culmination of the story in Christ. What is the point? How does this fit into the overall story of what God is doing? And this is the horizon of context for Leviticus that we want to look at this morning. Leviticus is right at the heart and the center of the law, the covenant that God made with Israel, the old covenant. How does the old covenant relate to the new covenant in Christ Jesus? Are they the same? Are they different? Does it apply to you? If so, how does it apply to you? Do you see how important these questions immediately are if we're going to be going through the book of Leviticus, an expression of the law, as new covenant Christians? We need to have very clear in our minds in order to do everything we're about to do well, we need to have these things clearly in our minds. So that's what we're going to do this morning as we continue to introduce the book of Leviticus and prepare ourselves to approach it well. So are we under this covenant that's spelled out in the book of Leviticus? Should we be building a tabernacle or a temple in Durango with an altar for sacrifices? Should we be ordaining priests to bring the blood of the animals to the altar? If no, why not? And if not, then does it apply to us at all? And if so, how does it apply to us? What are we supposed to take away from all of these complex rituals that we read about in the book of Leviticus? What's the direct, the direct application to us in our world today? So before we dig into the details of the text, um, the elders thought it would be valuable to do a sermon working through the big picture questions uh, so that we're ready to hit the ground running in the bloody details of Leviticus. So we're going to look at the canonical context of Leviticus, Leviticus and Jesus, a tale of two covenants. And we'll look at a lot of scriptures to guide us through this. We're going to jump all around. And we want scripture as our guide here. We need scripture as our guide here because this doctrine of the relationship of the covenants with one another, how we relate to the Old Testament, how all the scriptures relate to Christ and then to Christians in the new covenant, this doctrine is very hard theology. Jonathan Edwards, who's considered by some people to be the smartest guy ever to live in America, okay, not even just the smartest theologian, just like the smartest guy, um, said this is the hardest point in all of theology, is understanding how these covenants fit together. Uh, if it was hard for him, it won't be easy for us. So it's really important that we get it right, that we look to the scripture and we think carefully about it. And it's also a doctrine, I think, on which there's much confusion in the church. There's a lot of different answers you'll get to these questions. And so we want to look very carefully at what scripture actually says. And then that's just going to set us up to hit Leviticus just running and ready to apply everything directly. Thankfully, God has spoken very plainly and very clearly to us in his word so that we can see clearly on these matters. So here we go. Leviticus is profitable to train us in righteousness. This is the first point. Leviticus is profitable to train us in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, you'll probably have it memorized. You can turn there if you want. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's where we get the word inspiration, breathed out. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All scripture is profitable. Profitable for what? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good 
So all scripture is Leviticus scripture. So if all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, then Leviticus, and Leviticus is scripture, then Leviticus is breathed out by God and profitable. Profitable for teaching. Leviticus is profitable for us, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This book can train you in righteousness. This gets us to what theologians call the third use of the law. The first use of the law is to show us our sin and our need for Christ. It reveals where we fall short. It shows that the, like the thing at the, before you get on the roller coaster, it's like you have to be this tall to ride. And when you're a kid and you look up and you're not tall enough, the law does that. Like you, you didn't make it. It reveals our sin. Paul calls it a tutor that brings us to Christ, shows us our need for him so that we look to him for atonement and salvation. The second use of the law uh, is to restrain evil. The flesh responds to fear of threats and punishments. And so the law is able to curb, curb evil to some degree by threat of divine or human punishment. Even if it doesn't make somebody want to obey from the heart, okay, it can still um, make you afraid of getting caught or going to hell. And so kind of keep it a little bit in line. And then the third use of the law is that it teaches us to distinguish between good and evil. It teaches us the difference between justice and injustice, between what God loves and what God hates, and then to guide us to live accordingly. And this is exactly what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, including the law, is profitable for, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Do you see the third use of the law right there in 2 Timothy 3.16? All the scripture is profitable to train you in righteousness, among other things. And I emphasize that one because lots of Lutherans, and then that's spilled into some neo-Calvinists today, deny the third use of the law. They say the law is never to be used that way. The law only provokes sin, which it does do that as well. Um, but they say it only points you to Christ, okay? But it never teaches you anything about how to live for God. But here it is, plain as day, all scripture, including the law, the old covenant is profitable for training in righteousness. And so Leviticus will teach, reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness. That's point one. Leviticus is profitable to train us in righteousness. Point two, this doesn't mean that we're under the old covenant. This doesn't mean that we're under the old covenant. While we accept the authoritative nature of all of scripture, and we acknowledge the profitability and applicability of all scripture, including Leviticus, this doesn't mean it applies in exactly the same way or teaches, or all of it teaches us in exactly the same way. And so we need finer distinctions in our minds about this. The law teaches us principles of justice. The law gives us understanding of righteousness, but it is not our covenant. Notice I'm using the term law here as Paul generally uses it, not to refer to commandments in general, but the law referring to the old covenant, to the Leviticus, to the covenant that God entered into with Israel. But we're not under the old covenant. And this is very important for us to understand. Let me try to illustrate. We could learn good things from studying Roman law, couldn't we? A lot of good philosophical work was done by the Greeks and the Romans that endures even today. Just general thoughts about justice, natural revelation, just thinking about what's good and what's bad by the light of the general light of reason, we can learn things about justice and law. Some things, are, you know, we wouldn't do, some things we would. 
but we're not citizens of ancient, the ancient Roman Empire who wrote those laws, right? It's easy to understand when we put it in this context, right? We can benefit and learn from them. We can read old Roman laws and think, oh, look at that. That was a good idea. That was like in line with scripture and that was valuable. Um, it, but we can't judge, sentence, and punish someone directly from the old Roman law code because it's not over us because we're citizens of a different kingdom. We're not Roman citizens. And so while we could read their laws and benefit and learn things historically and even maybe learn things like, oh, that was a good idea. That was a good way to go about it. Maybe we should do that. And you should know that our country's law code is based on Greco-Roman laws and the Bible. Okay? We learned from those things as a country and that's, like, that's where our laws came from. So we have done this. And yet we know that we wouldn't just look up a Roman law book and then try to punish somebody accordingly because that's not their law. Okay. So do you see the similarity? How much more have we learned and can we learn from studying the laws written by God himself? Those are just men groping about in the darkness by the light of nature, okay, by the light of general revelation. But God gave specific laws to the nation of Israel written by his own finger on the tablets. And how much more can we learn from those laws? We can learn about personal righteousness. We can learn things about who God is and what he loves and what he hates. We can learn things about worship and how we approach God. We can learn things about Christ and his priestly and sacrificial work. We can learn things about principles of justice for society. We can learn things about laws and punishments and so on and so on. And as we do, we can do that with the realization that we don't judge, sentence, and bind one another by the old covenant law because we're not under that law. That was the law of the nation of Israel and we are under the law of Christ in the new covenant. That was a covenant. These laws are part of the covenant. They're bound according to the covenant. And when that covenant is over, and now we're under a new covenant, we have different laws, okay? And, and so the Bible clearly tells us that we're not under the law of Moses. So do you have that distinction in your mind? We can learn from it. It's good. It's valuable. It's beneficial to teach us all sorts of things. And yet, it's not our covenant. So let me show you from scripture that we're not under the law of Moses. Let's start with Hebrews 8, 6. Maybe you remember it from earlier this morning. Hebrews 8, 6, and we'll read through 13. So we'll just read part of what Russ read to us this morning. But as it is, Hebrews 8, 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The first covenant, second. That's the old covenant, the covenant with Israel, and then the new covenant in Christ. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant could he be talking about? <laughs> it's very clear for us, isn't it? Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant is that? That's the Mosaic covenant. It's plain as day. 
but I will make a new covenant, he says. The days are coming, because this was before Christ came, so to them it was future prediction. The days are coming to the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not just the exact same thing. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Do you see how direct that is? It would be hard to say it more clearly than that, wouldn't it? In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are not merely two versions or application of one and the same covenant. Rather, the New Covenant is not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The New Covenant is much greater, much better. And in speaking of a New Covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Or listen to Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Law is a word Paul often uses to refer to the old covenant. Sin has, will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law. You're under grace. You're under the new covenant. You're not under the old covenant. It's not like um, just only they had laws and no grace. And it's not like we have only grace and no laws, no commands from God. So you see he's talking about two Covenants. You're not under the law covenant. You're under the grace covenant. Or Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit from God. You've died to the law through Christ Jesus so that you can be joined to Christ in a new covenant. If anyone is still inclined to be skeptical, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 11. Turn there, this one's a little longer. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 11. There's lots of different opinions on these things and how we relate to the law and how the covenants work. And that's why we just need to get it straight from the scripture, just straight from the source. What does the Bible say? 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, what's that? Can we think of any ministry that was, had, that was carved into letters on stone that was given to the Israelites with glory reflecting off of Moses' face? I don't know. <laughs> Who could know? Again, it's just as clear as it can be. This is the old covenant. This is the Israelite covenant. Okay? If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, it's very glorious, which was being brought to an end. There it is. Okay? That old ministry was being brought to an end. 
will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, the old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Do you see that that old ministry, the ministry of the law, was being brought to an end? That's what he says. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The new covenant is a permanent ministry and permanent arrangement. Okay. Or flip back to 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 21. I'm going to continue belaboring this point because everything hinges on getting this right. And we just need to see it. This is not, I'm not picking out one verse or two. Okay, this is all over the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 21. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So when Paul went to Jews who were under the old covenant, who were under the Levitical laws, he acted like a Jew. He took on the Jewish law. So not to put a stumbling block in between, in front of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Paul was not under the law. Even though Paul had Jewish descent, having come to Christ and been brought into the new covenant by faith in Christ Jesus, he is now no longer under the old covenant law. He's now no longer under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those out, so is he saying he just has no commands whatsoever? No, no. He's not talking about law in that sense. He's talking about the old covenant. Because look, he's about to explain. To those outside the law, okay, that's the Gentiles, those who weren't under the old covenant. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So as you see, he's talking about the covenants. He's not talking about just commands in general, because otherwise he wouldn't, he, he's like specifying that. I'm not saying I don't have any law. I'm not saying I'm a lawless person. It's just I'm, to those outside the law, the Torah, I become like them and I don't keep any of the Jewish laws. Then I live like them. Uh, but not that I'm, a, not being outside the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ. Okay? So you have the law of Moses and the law of Christ as two distinct laws. Okay, let's try one more. We're having so much fun. Galatians 3, 19 and then 23 through 26. Galatians 3, 19 and 23 to 26. Why then the law? Galatians 3, 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law was given until... Uh, let me get it right. Why in the law was added? Because until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Who's that? Christ. Now skip to verse 23. Now before faith came, that's, I think he's using faith to describe the new covenant. Before faith came, because it's not like there was no faith under the old covenant. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until 
the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. Okay? The law came as a guardian. Uh, that was verse 23, I think, or maybe 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now look at the end. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. Okay. Do you see how clear and how over and over and just across the New Testament, the idea is that you are not under the old covenant. You are not under the law of Moses. That's not your covenant. Do you see that we're not under the law? We're not to go back under regulations. We're not to go back to observance of days and months and seasons and years. Let me just read you Colossians 2, 16 to 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So as a Christian, you can't let anyone judge you with regard to Sabbath, Sabbath, festival, new moon, food and drink. I mean, that's all summary of the old covenant law. Food laws, Sabbaths, festivals. The new moon was how they, they set the calendar. And they went, you know, on this day, you need to blow the trumpet and have this feast. You need to go over here and do the day of atonement and all these things. They're based on these. So he's saying, nobody can, nobody, don't let anybody judge you with regard to the law. Do you see that same idea? You can learn from it and you should, but you're not under, we're not gonna take an old Roman book and then try to sentence you according to it. That doesn't make any sense. Same thing with the law. Don't let anybody bring the old covenant and be like, it says here, you need to blow the trumpet on the first day of the month and you didn't blow that trumpet, so you're guilty. Like, no, you can't judge me on that. Okay? That's not my covenant. Christians are not under the old covenant law. We don't follow the old covenant food laws. We don't follow the old covenant festival calendar, right? Let no one pass judgment on you, questions of food and drink. We don't follow the old covenant festival calendar. We don't observe Sabbaths. We don't bring daily sacrifices of bulls and goats to an earthly priest or undergo various washings for purifications of the flesh. We have something far greater. We have the fulfillment of those things in Christ Jesus and the new covenant. Now, you could do things that are in the old covenant law. It's not like it's forbidden from you. It's like you have to eat pork every meal or else you're, you're back under the law. <laughs> you could do things that are in the old covenant law, but you should be really careful that you're not doing them as an act of righteousness establishing your righteousness through your keeping of the law, or as though you were back under the old covenant, doing as though you, you owed obedience to that. We read earlier of Paul acting as one under the law to, in order to evangelize those under the law. So if you're hosting a Bible study among religiously Jewish people, don't serve BLTs for lunch. Don't be a moron, right? Don't put a stumbling block in front of them, okay? Those who are under the law become as one under the law or that you may win them to Christ. You are free to circumcise your sons as a matter of hygiene or aesthetics, but if you do it as any sort of covenant significance, you have turned your back on Christ and you are obligated to keep everything in the old covenant law. Does that sound harsh? Listen to Galatians 5, 1 to 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So if you thought what I said sounds harsh, now after you read that, you might think it sounds a little loose. Because he's like, if you accept circumcision... You've despised Christ. What does he say? Uh, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are severed from Christ. But then uh, the reason I say you're free to circumcise or not, as long as you don't do it for any covenantal reasons, any establishment of righteousness, anything like that, is because he concludes by saying, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. If you chose to do that for aesthetics or for cleanliness, I just don't think it matters. But if you're doing it for any degree of righteousness or covenant reasons, you're in danger and you should repent of that. If you go back under the law of the old covenant, you trample on the finished work of Christ and the new covenant in order to do so. Romans 7 talks about our relationship to the law and to Christ in the metaphor of a widower. It's the beginning of Romans 7. It says that you were bound to the law in a marriage covenant but now you've died to it and are bound to Christ in a marriage covenant. If you were here at Sunday school, we read that in great detail. So you who have died to the law and been bound to Jesus, for you to go back to the old covenant would mean what, according to that metaphor? You were married to the law and you died. You died, there was death that ended that so that you could be now married to Christ. If you go back to the law, what are you doing? You're committing adultery. You're going back to your old spouse. So you had a spouse, that covenant ended, you got remarried, and now you're going back to the old spouse. Stop doing that. That's what you're doing to Christ if you try to go back under the old covenant law. Don't do it. That's why Paul talks so seriously about it. You have died to the law and been bound to Jesus for you to go back to the old covenant as your law would be like a man whose wife died and then remarried to go back to his first wife. Uh, For one, she's dead, and that's weird and gross. But for two, it dishonors your wife. Don't do it. Okay, one more point on this. In the midst of this, often theologians will say um, it's one-third of the law that carries over and two-thirds of the law that don't. So we divide the law into thirds, and then we say it's two-thirds of the law that you don't go back under, one-third of the law that you remain under. Okay, this, they call it the threefold division of the law. This is a theolo- one theological solution to like how all this works out. Okay. You see how all this talks, but you see how all the things we've been saying, have you noticed anything about one third of the law being said? Where Paul's like, you have died to two thirds of the law. Don't go back. No, it's just, it talks about it as a whole. It's a covenant. It all hangs together. It all stands and falls together. It's a covenant. Okay. We've seen nothing of a threefold division of the law such that you've died to two-thirds but remain married to one-third of it. Often theologians will talk about the threefold division of the law, moral law, 
civil law and ceremonial law. So you have the ceremonial laws, kind of the sacrifices. You have the civil laws, like punishments for crimes in the, in the civil society. And then the moral laws, kind of like personal righteousness, you know, don't commit adultery and things like that. Okay. And then theologians will say that Jesus fulfilled the civil and ceremonial laws, but he didn't fulfill the moral ones and they carry on. But that's just not how the Bible talks about it. They're not presented in neat categories like that. When you read through Leviticus, you certainly don't get categories like that, okay? I learned this from R.C. Sproul. He's just like, you, you read the law, you don't find this moral, civil, and ceremonial laws, okay? They just, you just get them all. It's like, don't wear a shirt with mixed fabrics. Don't sleep with your father's wife. You know, don't trim the edges of your beard. Like, don't oppress the poor. It's just all mixed in there. We'll see it when we go through Leviticus. The New Testament Further, it doesn't talk about the fulfillment of the law in this way. All of the laws are moral. They're all moral. So it's better to think about the law as being fulfilled as a whole. That's how the New Testament teaches us to think about it. And there being continuity between the law of Israel and the law of Christ, which we are under. So there's lots of similarities between the law of Israel and the law of Christ. There's lots of overlap. And that overlap looks a whole lot like what theologians would call the moral law. So if it's a what are those charts called of the two circles? A Venn diagram, okay? There's overlap between the two. And that's, so you end up in the same place theologically, okay? If you divide it up into thirds and then say, the one third that carries over is the moral law. If it's, you just think of that as the overlap between the two covenants, okay? But, I, but it's, it's a better way to get there, to think of the law as a whole, the old covenant law being fulfilled, us being under a new law, which happens because all the law is grounded in the nature and the character of God is going to look very similar. Of course it would. It's not going to be, you know, you shall murder and, and, and you shall not murder. Okay? There's going to be a lot of overlap because it's all coming out of the character of God. All right. But it's going to be different in different eras of redemptive history when one's for the nation of Israel as a, as a people uh, and, a, and a political nation okay, living... Uh, without the Holy Spirit and without the renewal and the regeneration, and then under the new covenant where we have the Holy Spirit and it's a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, the outflow of it is going to look a little different, and so it does. Okay, so then how do we use the law? Point one was the law is profitable for you for training in righteousness. Okay, we were like, okay, we got this. This is easy. But then point two is like, you're not under the old covenant. And I've hit this so hard just by reading the New Testament text that you'd start to think, I guess we don't use the law at all. So how do we bring all this together? How do we, under the new covenant, use the law? This is the third point. Remember where we started. All scripture is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be fully equipped. The law is scripture, and we study it, and we learn deep truths about God. We learn deep truths about worship. We learn deep truths about goodness, righteousness, and about Jesus himself, even in the law. So clearly understanding this distinction allows us to use the law really well. Remember the analogy to Greco-Roman law? Does the fact that we're not under that law as a nation mean we can't learn from it, or we don't learn from it, or we shouldn't learn from it? Of course not, we should. Okay. How much more with the law of God? As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. So we have to know, how do I use it? How do I use it according to God's law? Let's start with an example from Paul. The Bible just gives us incredibly detailed instruction on how we do this. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 3 to 14. This will be the last 
major theological point here. 1 Corinthians 9, 3 to 14. We seek principles of righteousness from the law. 1 Corinthians 9, 3. We seek principles of righteousness from the law. Let's watch how Paul does it, okay? Let's watch Paul pull from the Pentateuch and use it and apply it to Christians and notice what he does. 1 Corinthians 9, 3 to 14. This is my defense to those who would examine me, Paul says. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Grab a hold of that one. This is the point. People are accusing him, telling him he has no right to refrain from working for a living. They're mad at Paul for receiving money for gospel ministry. Okay. Now here's his, his answer kind of takes up the next several verses. Okay. Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Verse seven, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses. See how he uses law and law of Moses interchangeably. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, here we're back in the law, right, as an example, get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. All right, let's walk through this and notice a few things of how Paul reasons from the law to address a specific question under the new covenant. Paul is teaching a specific principle about how the Corinthians have obligations to him for his work among them as an apostle. That's the, that's the principle that he's teaching about. How does he establish this principle? that the Corinthians owe him, he has a right to some uh, payment, whether that's food or whatever, for his apostolic work among them. How does he establish it? First, he reasons from nature. Look at verse seven. First, he reasons from what we call general revelation. Look at verse seven. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? You see this appeal to nature. He's just like, you all know this, right? Just in normal human life, this is how we always treat people because just the normal light of reason will show you this. So Paul first appeals to general revelation, okay? Natural law. Then he demonstrates the general revelation, the natural law. He demonstrates its consistency with the law of Moses to show he's not just speaking on human authority. That's verse eight. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So he demonstrates the consistency of the natural law. Now he's gonna pull in another way to demonstrate this principle, and that is the law of Moses. Okay. So he quotes from Deuteronomy here, and he cites the law about not muzzling an ox while it treads out the grain. What does that have to do with anything? 
Well, because it's working in the grain, and if you muzzle it, it can't eat while it's doing it. He's like, don't do that. Let the thing eat while it works, because that's part of what you owe it. Okay, so he appeals to the law and demonstrates this, and then how does he apply it? How does he apply it? He draws a principle out of it, doesn't he? He's not talking about oxen here, and that's what he's going to say. He looks to the law, and he derives from it a principle of justice, a principle of righteousness, of what's fair. Okay? And then he reasons from lesser to greater to apply it to apostles being paid material things for their spiritual work. Like if a cow gets to eat the grain while it, while it plows, how much more should an apostle get to be provided some food for bringing the gospel to a people? Okay? He argues from lesser to greater from the law. So first he looks to natural law, general revelation, demonstrates it there. Then he shows it in the law of Moses, derives a principle of righteousness and fairness, and then talks about that as having authority, right? As binding. It's not merely human authority. He appeals to the law. There's still an authority to it as principle that applies to us. Okay. Then he makes another argument from the law in verse 13. Now, um, uh, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in their sacrificial offering? So he shows it again. Look at these principles. Look how God always provides for those serving in his kingdom. And he provides when they bring the, when the priest would offer the sacrifice, they would eat part of it. That was how they ate. So he's like, look, there it is again, established in the law as a principle. But Paul's not a priest. He's not offering, making offerings on the, on the altar in the temple. So what's he doing? Because that doesn't apply directly. So he derives a principle of justice from it, and he shows it to them, again, from the law. And then, notice what he does last. Finally, he lands it with an appeal to a direct command of Jesus himself. So he finishes with the law of Christ in verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He nails the case down. He finishes it off with the haymaker, with the final answer, an appeal to the law of Christ himself. And this is from Matthew 10, 5 to 10. Let's look at it. Because when he says, doesn't the Lord say, you know, in the, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is talking now, he's pulling it now into the new covenant, the gospel, and he's quoting Jesus, the Lord himself who taught on this. Matthew 10, 5. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. So don't bring a bunch of gold with you. Don't bring all the stuff you'll need. Go out for the laborer deserves his food. This is what Paul is quoting when he says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The labor deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there till you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. So Paul finishes the appeal. Um, oh man, I didn't write this one down. If you, are, if you are hesitant about that connection 
okay, about that being what's cited. He's talking about the gospel, see that. So our Lord himself, that's the Lord Jesus, okay, that he's ending with this appeal to the law of Christ. Uh, there's a passage in Timothy that pulls those two together very directly. About, so in Timothy, he's talking about um, a minister being worthy of double honor, and then, he, and then he says that he should be paid for his gospel work, and then he quotes the Lord in that same passage. But I don't have it written down. But if you stumble over it, let me know, and I'll find it for you later. But what a master class in hermeneutics. What a master class in the application of the law in the new covenant that Paul just gave us there. First, general revelation. Don't we all know it? This is from the light of nature. Second, this isn't just human authority. Look how it's established in the law. Derive a principle from the law of justice, which we now understand. Find another principle of the same principle in the law. So we double check it and then compare it to the teaching of Christ and the law of Christ and apply it. It's perfect. This is, how, this is how you use the law as a Christian. The law informs, it teaches, it trains us in righteousness, it backs up what's true, and it helps interpret the law of Christ. A relevant example today is on the topic of sexual immorality. The New Testament will often just say sexual morality. You know, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you're like, well, define that, right? Spell out what do you mean by that? And so if you want to define that, if you want to spell it out, you can go back to Leviticus and ask yourself, what does God think is sexually immoral? Then you can go back and you can look. I mean, painstaking detail. We'll get there. And then you know what it is. So you say, okay, there it is in the law of Christ. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does God mean by that? Well, let's go back to the old covenant. And he lays out clearly things that he finds to be sexually immoral. And so we can be informed and trained in righteousness from that. It's helpful to us. He never intended to just sweep away the old covenant when it was fulfilled in Christ as though you should not read it anymore. You should still read it and learn from it. So when we want to know what kind of morals to live by, we can look to the law and learn principles of righteousness, though we're not going to it as our own covenant. Getting this stuff clear in our minds helps us with another hot topic in our culture today. Okay, you can see how pertinent that is when you think about the laws of sexual morality. And if you ever argued with people about this, you'll find they go to that right away. And they'll be like, you just cherry pick out of the Old Testament. You, know, you pick that one, but you don't, but you, you know, wear mixed fabrics. So you have to have a basic understanding of how the law applies to the new covenant that we will develop as we go. It also helps us with another uh, very practical question today. And that's the topic of Christian nationalism. You hear Christian nationalism being talked about. And, and the progressives are, are accusing everybody of being Christian nationalists. And the Christian nationalists, the Christians are rising up and saying, yeah, sure, we are Christian nationalists. And we, we would love to have this be a Christian nation. It was founded as a Christian nation. And there's all this talk about it. And you have other Christians going, no, no, we're not like those nasty Christian nationalists. We're the nice ones. And so don't be mean to us. And you have this whole swirling question about what's going on and how we think about the laws as they apply to government today. Should we pursue the project of theonomy, seeking to conform the laws of our nation to the laws of God, the laws of Israel? Should we be, we, we have a whole book and it's got lots of national laws and how you punish them and what you do. What, how should we take that? Should we just be taking those and being like, look, it says that if somebody's an adultery, you should stone them. So should we say adultery is illegal and the punishment is stoning? Uh, if you react like wildly to that, you should stop and ask yourself why. Um, was that an unjust law? Was it unjust to stone someone for adultery? Absolutely not. If it was, then God wrote an unjust law, okay? So we need to think about these kinds of questions, 
Okay. Should we pursue the project of theonomy, seeking to conform the laws of our nation to the laws of God? I say absolutely yes. Okay. John Frame asks, if we don't get our ideas from justice and the foundation for our natural laws from God's word, where will we get them? Some say we should look only to natural revelation. Remember, Paul started there. But then Paul quickly said, oh, I'm not just speaking on human authority. And he backed it up by appeals to the law and then ultimately the law of Christ. But why hold ourselves to natural revelation when we have a Bible that reveals God's will so clearly and so explicitly? So that's theonomy is the idea that we should take the law of God, even the civil ones, and seek to apply them today. I like Pastor Tommy's phrase. He calls it new covenant theonomy. New covenant theonomy. It's like what some call general equity theonomy. If you're bored by all this, it's okay. But like some of you are in these, these theological discussions and right in the middle of them and wondering, okay? A lot of people call it general equity theonomy, which is to say you take the general principle of justice from God's law and then you seek to apply it now today in a different context, okay? And that's what I'm saying we should do. Okay? I don't think, based on everything I've just said, if you think I'm saying we should take the exact Mosaic law and apply it directly today, you just haven't been listening. Right? Okay. But we should derive principles of justice from God's law, and we should reason from natural reason and apply principles of justice from God's natural law and carry them over today and say, that's the principle of justice. Now we know what's fair and right and just and true. Now how do we apply this today? And what's the best way to bring this to bear, having checked it all by the law of Christ? We compare it all to the new covenant and say, what did the Lord say on these matters? Okay. And then we bring them all together and we seek to apply them. Now, that takes a fair amount of work, and so a lot of people like just want, we'll just skip over all that, you know, and just be like, ah, we'll just kind of be guided by the Spirit, okay? But this is the process of how you're guided by the Spirit through his word and thinking it through. And we need to be a people who are willing to do some hard work to think carefully about justice. Like, I want you to imagine a scenario where there was a country of people who decided not to listen very carefully about what God says about justice and then just started making up ideas of their own about justice or getting them from somebody like, say, I don't know, Karl Marx, and then applying those. Can you imagine, just, I know, stretch your imagination, but what might start happening in their culture? Horrible stuff, right? I mean, real harm to real people on the ground, just across the board. It's not to say we'll necessarily just take the national laws of Israel, carry them over one-to-one. -one. Israel is a nation in a special covenant with God, a kingdom of priests, and before the Spirit was given. So we don't apply the old covenant law today to our nation as though we are under it as a covenant. But we should search it diligently, study it carefully, learn the principles of justice, see how God set up a nation, and use wisdom to apply those principles to the law of America and Colorado and Durango. We are to teach the nation to observe everything that Jesus commanded. And that doesn't exclude the political realm. I mean, what an important realm the political realm is. How much harm comes to people when we cede the political realm to pagans or Marxists. So we can look to the law and learn principles about civil law and how to order ourselves as a society. We can look at principles in the law to learn things about how God likes to be worshipped and how we should carry out our worship. Again, we don't worship him according to the old covenant. We have so much more access to God than they did. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the once-for-all sacrifice rather than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. We have the new and living way opened up through the veil of Christ's flesh. But we can still learn all sorts of stuff about our spiritual worship from looking at the principles of how Israel worshiped God according to his command about what God likes in worship. We can learn about what it means to present ourselves as living sacrifices as we look to what the old covenant sacrifices were like. We can learn principles of worship like what God thinks about strange fire offered on his altar 
worship according to the imaginations of men when we read about Nadab and Abihu. We can learn how seriously he takes reverence in worship, as the law of Christ says. We must worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And last, but most certainly not least, we learn about Christ from the law. We can learn about Jesus' sacrifice for us and the atonement that he made when he offered himself up to God for our sin. So that in Christ, the perfect sacrifice has been made for your sin. Your sin is completely atoned for. You don't have to do it week after week and come to the priest every single day. Rather, your sacrifice is done. And you have the perfect sacrifice to offer to God, the one that's already done in Christ Jesus by faith. We can learn about Jesus's high priestly work for us, presenting a pleasing aroma before God for our propitiation, such that God's not mad at you. His wrath is completely and perfectly and finally and fully assuaged, and he is just now, his face is shining upon you because of the priestly work of Christ Jesus on your behalf. We can learn about Jesus transferring our sins onto the goat and driving it away from us so that our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We can learn about Jesus washing us and making us clean from all our uncleanness and impurity all the way down to our hearts so that we don't come to him defiled and dirty, but washed and purified to sit at his table with him. We can learn about Jesus dealing with leprosy, the leprosy of our heart. Anybody reading Leviticus lately and they're through the Bible plan? And you get to the stuff on leprosy and you're just like, oh, gross. Like I, it turns into a boil and the hair is turning white. You know, it's an open sore. I think this is how you deal with it. This is what your heart's like. That's the, isn't that the main point? Your heart's got these nasty, cankerous sores growing and spreading. That's your sin. But Jesus deals with that. He has cleansed that. He has washed you. He has made you clean. We can learn about the festivals and how they prefigured Jesus as the true Passover lamb dying for us. The first fruits rising from the dead to begin a harvest of a new creation the bringing in of the whole harvest on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is given and now we live in the age of the harvest, the year of Jubilee and how Christ released us from prison and pays all our debts. We can learn so much from the law. What a valuable thing for us as we understand we're not under it, we're under something even greater and yet we go back to it and learn and are trained in righteousness so that we are fully equipped and we learn law and we learn about Christ himself. So as we go through Leviticus from here, we see the law and all the glories that law was given to reveal. We do not despise the law. We do not set it aside, but we understand our relation to it as it delivers us into the glorious nail-scarred hands of Christ. Amen. Amen. God, thank you so much for your law. Thank you so much for teaching us about your law and how it applies to us and what it means for us. Lord, thank you for how much richness there is for us on every side. And thank you for how clearly you prefigure Christ and give us the grammar of redemption in the law. Lord, thank you for these things. And thank you that we now have this great and glorious access, having been cleansed, to come into your house and to sit at your table. And Lord, now, as we come to your table, meet with us by the Holy Spirit through Christ, for we ask in his name.